praise the Lord for songs and worship to give forth to someone who is really deserving of our worship and our praise and our thanks. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Philippians. We'll start in chapter 1, somewhere between 18 and 19 there. It's a little fragment, and it starts with the word, yes. Notice it starts with a three-letter word. One time I was in a recovering from a back surgery, and I was with Bernie May, who was the director at the time of Wycliffe, and he said, faith is a three-letter word. He was going to give a message. I said, Y-E-S, yes. So we are going to read this, and so if you are able, and if you so desire, please stand for the reading of God's word. Before we read, we will pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence gladly. We are aware that there is no limitation to your wisdom or power. We've been singing about that. We know that we're needy. We are aware, Lord, that all of us have plenty of room for improvement. And we invite you, Lord, to speak to us through the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, off the pages of your word that you've given to us. We ask, Lord, that you attune our attention and our ears to hear your voice to us. You tell us how we can apply these words to where we live for your glory, for the good of others, and for vitality even for ourselves. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, hear the word of God. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. You know, he's in prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to be executed or not. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw that saw I had, and now here that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are only going to look at the five verses from 14 to 18 of chapter 2. But I read this because I wanted you to know that this is a, a kind of a climax, a summary climax of what he has stated. The burden of his concern for his friends at Philippi 
have uh, been expressed from uh, really from wherever we read, but especially from verse 27 and following. He is concerned very much about them working together uh, side by side. He repeats himself with one mind, one soul, uh, not just self-centeredness. Don't worry about the enemies. Uh, that just shows that they are going to perish, you know, but you're going to be saved. So his concern is that they have this vital Christian life that's marked by good partnership, understanding, working together well. That's what he is concerned about. And when he goes through this, he realizes that this kind of oneness takes a certain uh, number of things. The one thing he, he plays loud on is that they need humility. It's interesting, isn't it? Because humility is really one of our strengths, isn't it? He said, if they're going to do this, if there's going to be oneness here, it's going to take an attitude. And he rolls out, that have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that he, though he was God and didn't need to be uh, anything else, but he himself went down, humbled himself. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient. How many of you find obedience really easy? Put hand up. You think, come on, Neil, when does it get good? You know, so I'm just saying that he's saying this. And he, he says, now I'm, I'm becoming obedient even unto the point of death. So what Paul is, the burden on his heart is that he cares about these Christians that live in Philippi, and for some reason he's heard that maybe they're having some problems, and so he writes this because he knows some things, and he's moving toward kind of a summary climax in these five verses. Really reaches back and actually depends on what he said in 12 and 13 and all the way back up here. This is important to realize. And I'm going to simplify this, and I'm going to say what he does here, as he really is delivering what he's saying, is he has a very clear picture, very clear vision of the desired outcome of he, what he wants for these people that are very dear to him. He, he loves them, he says, has a lot of affection for them. He says, I have you in my heart. And so what he does in verse 14 and following, he's already said, work out your salvation. Be, as you've always obeyed, obey here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And now he kind of expands on that statement here. And it isn't connected grammatically, 14 to 13, but in meaning it is very deeply connected. And here's the picture. He rolls out, and you can hold me to this, four Word pictures for us. And I'm going to ask you to track with me as I go through these. And I think this is brilliant. I think this is actually wonderful because I want all of you to take this whole thing to your small groups and one by one say what Paul wants of these people is right here for metaphors. Right? 
So you can say, well, well this, I hope this is good. It kind of starts with a negative. This is actually something he already referred to. He says, do everything without grumbling that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The first metaphor, the powerful biggest one, he says, is you are children of God. We've been singing about that, haven't we? You are a special kind of children. You're children pure and blameless without defect. You say, Pastor Neil, that kind of leaves us all out of it, doesn't it? I'm just telling you what he's praying for, what he wants to see, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. So the first picture is that you're children of God. And I don't know if any of you have children, but we have four and ten grandchildren. They're all perfect. (laughs) They never make mistakes. But he says, I want you to be these children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. You know, they may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Three, if I look at myself, I say, Blameless? No. Innocent? No. Children of God? Yeah, I guess so. Without blemish? Uh, you know. So where are, why is he saying this? He's saying what all of the people around you that are twisted and crooked in this present generation need more than anything is they need to see in your lives and in how you interact with each other that you are these kind of children of God. Amen? We know he uses the term children of God very advisedly because he knows the Lord Jesus said that in Nicodemus you must be born again. You don't become a a child of God yourself. You can't birth yourself into the family of God. He does it. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That was born of the spirit is spirit. This is done by God when people come to hear the word of the gospel and they respond to it. They are made children of God by God himself. But here Paul is focusing on what kind of children. Notice he started the sentence, do all things without grumbling or questioning. It's important that we try to figure out what does he mean here? Well, Neil, this is a simple thing. Just don't question and go grumble. Actually, People grumble and question a great deal. Do you believe that? Yeah. I don't think he's saying here uh, this is some kind of ecclesiastical gag order for everybody in the church. Never say anything where you differ. No. But he is saying something very important. He is saying, probably drawing on his understanding of the Old Testament of the children of Israel, who were just happy as clams the whole 40 years they followed. He's probably saying, yeah. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy lays it out right there. You were grumbling and griping about everything from the time I called you out of Egypt until the time you followed Joshua into the promised land. You've been a headache. You've been a piece of work. 
Well, grumbling and complaining is characteristic of human beings. I'm only going to say two things about it because there's probably five messages in these five verses and I'm only doing one, okay? But one that comes to my mind is that there are certain things in the Christian life that are mutually exclusive. The one gobbles up the other. One, if you're doing this, then you're going to have a hard time doing this. And this, these two phrases are in the same sentence. Have you noticed that? Do all things without grumbling or questioning, comma, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. So what, do you, what you see there, the fact that it's packaged in one verse means that this thing and this thing are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. You say, Neil, that's an, that's, uh, that hurts. Well, we all believe that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? So we shouldn't complain too much if we hear the word of God and we bleed a little bit. Because it sits in judgment on us, we don't sit in judgment on it. Amen? It says here about grumbling and questioning that it's at war with what he wants, his vision for the desired outcome, clear vision for these people. But there's a second thing that occurred to me. Now, there might be a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, but I could only think of two when I was working on this. Not only is this sometimes at war with this and actually poisons this, but secondly, it is a tremendous waste of time. Yeah. Actually, people enjoy arguing and debating and questioning. They, seem, they can spend hours at it. But you have to ask yourself the question, is this productive? If I'm engaged in doing this, then am I going to be able to be doing this in the verses that follow? It's very costly in resources and time to do the things that don't lead to any ultimate significance. Amen? Amen. But it doesn't stop there. It says, you're children of God, don't grumble. Blameless and innocent without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world moves us clearly to the second metaphor. He's jumped. It's important that he, you know that he's jumped. And the metaphor is what? Your lights. Yes. Is the world dark? Yes. The Bible clearly states that. We've gone from darkness to light. We are children of light. It's all over the place. And he says, you are uh, shining like lights in the world. So the, the, the ne that metaphor means, remember how we used to sing in daily vacation Bible school, if you went there when you were a kid, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No! <laughs> Paul is saying, my vision for you, that you are going to shine as lights in a world. 
Does the world love the fact that we're lights? The Bible clearly says there will be a mixed reaction to this light. People who are doing good things are attracted to the light. So it might be shown that what they've been doing has been wrought in God. This is what it says in John. But those who are doing evil avoid the light. Why? Shows up all the defects. If you've ever been a painter, paint a wall, and how does it look? Turn this light on, put it next to the wall. Oh. No, they don't like it, right? They are offended by it. They're not attracted to the light, nor do they appreciate the light. Jesus said clearly, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. But that doesn't let us off the hook, because here it says, I am praying, Paul, that you will be these kind of children that are shining as lights in this sad, dark world. Right? In Ephesians, we read this present darkness. Shining. You say, wow, that's good. That's great. I like that. May I just say that because we are shining in the midst of a twisted and perverted generation, as if I'm, I'm probably should ask you, do you feel our culture is doing really well right now? God's plan for helping this situation out is us. We have a weighty calling. There's a couple of dangers. One is, I think this crooked and twisted generation creates a magnetic field, a pull on believers. And sometimes we've, our compass goes like here and go. The danger here is you're shining as lights, faultless and pure, because he knows the possibility of the values and the attitudes and the beliefs of this world can actually deflect your heart and your priorities and your sense of who you are from the task that God has laid before you. That's a danger, correct? Besides, it's polluting influence there, but we're still supposed to be lights in the world, right? See, okay, that's one metaphor too. Where's the next one? Listen to this. Holding fast to the word of life. He doesn't use this phrase before here. This is new to this book. There's no place else in, in Philippians that he says this is called. We could have put in the word of the gospel. He's used that about ten times already. We could have said the, the word of love and grace through Christ. The word of power. We could have said all these things. Why did he choose this word, the word of life, that we're supposed to not just hold, but hold fast to keep a good grip on it? I didn't hear you because I'm so old and well-stricken in years. I want to say that uh, my younger years back before the flood, I, I, I had an ice axe that I fancied myself of what passed at mountaineering. But I remember reading very well about the ice axe. I have a gravel ice axe with a wooden handle 
They make far superior axes, ice axes today, but it has an adze for cutting steps and so on, and a pick the other way for poking in the ice, and a spike at the end, and a little loop there for put it around your wrist. And there's one adage that the trainers of people who want to be mountaineers say to you about the ice axe. You know what it is? Hang on to the axe. Why? Because you're up on a mountain like this, and here's an ice field going this way, and you set your ice hook down, and you're going to blow your nose. And right down there is a great yawning crevasse. And, and you're up at 11,000 feet. Ah! You're in trouble. Because that ice axe is for you to fall on to do self-arrest, correct? I don't know what kind of uh, illustration I can use. But the word of life is a well-chosen expression. And we're supposed to hang on to it. May I say, for dear life. Why? The world is trying to rip it out of our hands. False religion and all kinds of heresies are trying to rip this message apart. This is a message of life. And I think, I'm guessing here, your guess is as good as mine, but Paul used this on purpose. He said it's the message. Logos of Zoe means the word of life because Christianity and living for him as these lights in this dark, dark world is not just something we do here in the building. No. The message of the gospel is supposed to permeate all of the fiber, all the DNA of our bodies, our values, our beliefs, our preferences, our words and our thoughts, our actions are all supposed to be made alive in Christ. Because Paul said right here, we just read it, for me to live is Christ. It isn't something you paste on the side of your life. Are you a Christian? Yeah. Do you believe this? Yeah. yeah. Believe that? Yes. No. Everything you, about you, your identity, your longings, your destination, your relationships are influenced by this message, this word of life that isn't just, you know, download that, good, got that. Yeah. You believe this? Yes. No. It has to be everything to you. And it says here, holding fast to the word of life, comma. Then contra-expectation right here, it says, kind of, you're not, you're not expecting this fourth one to come. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What's he saying? I want this for you folks there in Philippi. I want this to be something lasting, something that produces eternal benefit. And then he says, e and even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now, I couldn't help but notice this. Uh, we just came through Christmas, right? And New Year's, all that. Stuff, right? 
The Greek word for I, even if I'm to be poured out, which means he could die, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, that Greek word, poured out as a drink offering, is spendo. Spendo. Is it related or linguistically to English? I doubt it. I think it's kind of interesting, though. Spendo. Because, listen up, what Paul is saying here is the Lord Jesus Christ came down and he was poured out completely out of love to rescue you folks and me folks, right? And he's saying here in the fourth metaphor, all that you are about, your reason for existence, your identity is supposed to be an act of worship. It isn't just something you do on Tuesdays. No, this life that Paul modeled so well, he's imprisoning him, I die. He says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your soul. Even if I'm poured out, I am glad. It seems to me that all of us want to get to the last verse where it says, uh, I am glad, even if I'm glad and rejoice with you all, likewise you should also be glad and rejoice with me. How many people would like to get on that square? Joy, be glad, joy, and rejoice. We will be glad and we will rejoice if we are pouring out, spendo our lives for things that have eternal, wonderful, good, Results, right? So you put them all together, like Paul's kind of moved these four metaphors together. I tell you, we used to play chess when I was a kid. I was never great at it, but you know, how many of you know how to play chess? Three people volunteered. Yeah. So <laughs> there, these all these players, white and black, they don't have all the same powers. The pawns, they you know, they're kind of like get slaughtered real easily. All of them are uh, back there in <clears throat> the back row, the rooks and the bishop and all this stuff. The knight, the queen, the king, they have a lot of power. Matter of fact, the whole game hinges on them. But their power is not in just themselves. It's in the positioning that the players put them in. Back behind the line, they're very safe, but they can't do anything. You say, why are you telling us about chess? I'm guessing here, this is not inspired, okay? But it seems like God took these four metaphors and put them there in the kind of climax and summary of where, what he was dealing with. So he said, because he wants us to say, what do you do when, you, when you're in checkmate, when you're in check? Take the king and you lay him down. What does that signify? What does that action signify? I give up. You won, right? I think the Lord wants our life poured out and saying, there's only one God and only one life worth living. All other lives are stupid. The life, the message of life is what we hold forth. I yield. I give up. Yeah, I lay me down like if we were just singing. There was a guy in our church when I grew up, and his favorite verse was the last verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, 
Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Even if you pour it out and die, even if you lose all your savings, is another person's salvation that you're shining your light among the crooked, is it worth it? All the hatred, all the misunderstanding that Jesus took, some of it comes and hits us, right? But if it's worth it, it says here, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word. And we ask that you would give us strength to comprehend what this means for us and to live like your children that are described here. Uh, speaking at least for myself, Lord, I have a lot of room for improvement. I have a long way to go. But Lord, please don't give up. Please keep working in us so that your image can be replicated in our character. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.